Welcome to Frontline Voices, a podcast by the Natural Resources Council of Maine. Every day, decisions are made across Maine that impact our environment, and Mainers play a crucial role as we speak up for climate action, the clear air, clear water, and open spaces that we all love. Come sit down with advocates and experts to discuss some of the most important stories that you need to know, what lies ahead, and hear what you can do about it. Thanks for listening as we share our view from the front lines. It's a new year and a new legislative session here in Maine, which means NRCM's experts are back at it, working to protect the outdoor places you know and love. And we've got fresh energy after taking that cold dip in the Atlantic Ocean on New Year's Eve at this year's Polar Bear Dip and Dash. If you missed the fun, hopefully you caught one of the local TV stories about it. And thanks to you, all of you who participated, and a happy new year to all of our listeners. I'm your host, Colin Durant. And for this episode of Frontline Voices, we're going to do something special and bring you the recording of a wonderful talk by scientist, educator, and author John Waldman about how we can restore Maine's rivers and the great fish migrations to which they were once home. Waldman's talk that you're going to hear soon was delivered at an online webinar NRCM hosted in December 2022 as part of our ongoing work to restore Maine's Kennebec River to bring back endangered Atlantic salmon. Now, as you've heard earlier on the podcast, four dams on the lower Kennebec are blocking access to critical spawning habitat for salmon and other sea-run fish, especially in the Sandy River. And the engineered fish passage uh, proposal by the dam's owners, Brookfield, uh, are to put it bluntly, bogus. Uh, A proposal like this has never worked anywhere else in the world where fish have to pass by four dams. Uh, And now NOAA Fisheries, which is the federal agency charged with protecting endangered wildlife, has a chance to issue much stronger fish passage requirements for these dams and help bring the Kennebec back to life. They're expected to make this decision in early February. Maine's Department of Marine Resources is pushing for these stronger fish passage requirements, and we really need NOAA fisheries to take the same bold action. Uh, In his talk, Waldman gives us great insight into why we need these dams removed to restore sea-run fish to Maine's Kennebec River. We hope you enjoy listening, Uh, and afterwards, please visit our website at nrcm.org and click on Get Involved and take action to send NOAA Fisheries a message asking them to take bold action to protect endangered Atlantic salmon. I'm gonna speak about um, a conservation cause that is dear to my heart and which I consider one of the great conservation failures of of the United States. Uh, And I'm gonna offer some ideas on how we might reverse that. So, I'm talking about a group of fish, which is rather rare throughout the fish world. There are over 20,000 species of fish on the planet and only uh, fewer than 200 are what we call diadromous, moving between fresh and salt water as a regular part of the life cycle. And um, it it has occurred only rarely in evolution and across a wide range of um, the phylogeny of fish. We have fish from as uh, primitive as the sea lamprey to as advanced as the striped bass. And that's not a, uh, a value judgment, although I esteem striped bass. Uh, that has to do with the evolutionary tree of fish. Uh, today, I'm gonna to focus on three species, the Atlantic salmon, 
the American Shad, and um, the Alewife. And I should say that Maine is fortunate to have a very high number of these kinds of fish. The only one missing off this um, chart in Maine is the hickory shad, which is a more southern species, which is moving north, and you probably see them in some decade in the future. Um, and um, the East Coast of North America has, I think, more species of diagemous fish than anywhere else in the world, from what I can tell. So these fish are rather special. This is a lithograph from the Hudson from uh, 1886 by Bernhard Lossing, and uh, it shows a fishing camp commercial fishing camp in the background here with the cotton nets drying, which had to be done in those days before nylon um, was invented. And it shows three fish species in the foreground. And it's no coincidence that they're all migratory and that they're not, you know, let's say a perch and a, a catfish and a sucker. These are the fish that uh, very predictably and reliably uh, return huge amounts of biomass to inland um, waters every spring and formed a huge amount of the sustenance base for Native Americans and for early colonists. And I think that's really shown very um, graphically in this postcard that I stumbled upon when I was in Cape Cod in an antique shop that just kind of caught my imagination as a wonderful uh, condensation of the promise and the perils of these kinds of fish. So you see here a river called the Herring River. And if you've been to Cape Cod, every other river is called either the Herring River or the Mill River, because those were the two major uses for those little streams in those earlier days. And this is a small creek in North Harwich. And in doing some further research, I found that um, they shipped about 3,700 barrels of alewives out of this little creek every spring, packing 400 to the barrel. So this tiny little system supported a huge number of fish. And it supported them because its only job was to provide a place for procreation. Um, they put on almost all of their biomass in the um, tremendously fertile ocean. And if you wanted to catch these same individuals in the open ocean, you could put out a hundred boats and have them search with trawl nets for, for months at a time. They might not catch a single one, but if you, wait for them patiently, you know that based on past experience, they, they will come marching up this river into your lap sometime in late March, early April. And if you are smart and uh, utilize them correctly, you can have a sustainable fishery forever. So you see here the river itself, the creek, um, a seining pond that has been dug out to make it easy to grab the fish, a little dam and the major lake, which forms the spawning area. Again, if you open up this dam and allow enough fish to pass, you will have an incredible fishery for years to come, um, extremely convenient and productive. And if you're foolish and you block them um, to too great a degree, you're gonna crash the fishery. And it's just a, this is kind of a microcosm of what we've done uh, to rivers on the East Coast. So in researching my book, Running Silver, I was very interested in the history of these fish and I love to collect quotes about what early colonists saw. And the early colonists were coming from Europe, uh, a continent that had been overfished and overtimbered and over everything for many centuries. So they had no idea what pristine runs of fish looked like. And some of their reactions were uh, rather uh, pronounced. Uh, 
William Wood said the alewives came in such multitudes, it is almost incredible. Whitmore in 1616 said there's a fish like a herring that comes up at small brooks to spawn in such abundance as is incredible. And my all time favorite by far is that by William Byrd, The Natural History of Virginia, 1728. He wrote, in a word, it is unbelievable, indeed undescribable, as also incomprehensible what quantity is found there. One must behold oneself. I would say he was impressed. What happened to these fish? Well, they were likened to passenger pigeons uh, in their incredible abundance. Remember that a passenger pigeon was the most abundant bird in North America, maybe in the world, now they're gone. Um, if you look at the recent pattern of declines of river herring in American shad, just from mid-century, 1950 to the present, it's, it's, it's a, nothing to be proud of. It's, it's a major crash. And uh, there are locations that were famous for river herring, like in the, uh, the herring run, the Cape Cod Canal, that's now closed, all harvest. Um, and across the Northeast, there in state after state, there's either total closures or partial closures. So um, we have not done well with these fish. And uh, I, in particular, loved reading Thoreau's reactions to what was happening. Um, Henry David Thoreau made a trip in 1839 with his brother on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers. And he titled the book, which he self-published in 1849, A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers. And he was paddling on these rivers at a point when the Industrial Revolution was just gearing up and people were we're thrilled to have these jobs and um, to be producing so much in the name of progress. And as he's paddling, he just foresaw doom for the fish. And it wasn't one particular page or paragraph, but throughout the entire narrative, here and there, he would say, wow, I can't believe what's happening here. And these fish are, are doomed. And I collected those quotes too. The one that really moved me was this really prescient quote. He said, who hears the fishes when they cry? He heard them crying at a time when people were thrilled at what was happening to that river. And this is what happened to the river. This is the Merrimack at the time of um, peak industrialization. And there were mills that were as long as football fields. Some 17,000 people made a living here every day. And the river was completely commodified for um, production purposes. Ironically, Amiskeag is the Native American name for the rapids and falls that come in upstream of, uh, of Manchester, New Hampshire. And that means in the native dialect, um, excellent fishing place. Well, not anymore. Uh, in researching the book, I traveled around <clears throat> and I wanted to see the Merrimack, uh, well, it's actually the Amiskeag Fishways Learning and Visitor Center because they have a window that allows you in theory to view the fish that are passing up this fish ladder um, as they ascend to the spawning grounds. And people were basically looking at um, murky water. There were no fish to be seen. Um, I saw, the only fish I saw were a goldfish in a bowl and this, this uh, fiberglass shad um, on top of the sign. And in some years, they literally don't see a single fish pass this. So um, there's not a whole lot of magic going on in this area of the Merrimack these days. So what's changed with these fish over time? Well, one um, factor that my colleague, Karen Limburg and I looked at in a paper we published about the status of these fish um, is size. And size is, is difficult to find quantitative data on, 
Uh, if you go up the east side of the Hudson River and you stop at the Hyde Park Post Office, you can see some marvelous scenes of um, the early Hudson, including this one, which shows a giant sturgeon being landed um, kind of in the middle sections of the river. And it's a little bit embellished, but sturgeon grew to 14 feet in those days. And we don't see many of those anymore. This is also sturgeon from the Oconee River um, down south. Uh, again, big fish like that are scarce. The most quantitative data I found actually was interesting. It was from John McPhee's wonderful book, The Founding Fish, about Chad. And uh, this photo is not from the book, but it's from the Delaware River. Uh, McPhee said that in 1800, Chad packed roughly in the Delaware at uh, 40 to the barrel, and in 1900, 100 to the barrel for the same size barrel. So the average size of those fish had shrunk considerably. And you can see here, these shad, we don't see shad like this anymore. You simply don't see them. They are almost non-existent. And yet this was the average size um, at a much earlier time. We also looked in that paper in bioscience at species and population persistence. And uh, we found there were 22 diagenous species that were found in Europe, North America, or both. And there was a lack of data on about half of them, the ones that had lower commercial value. But for the others, we found that American shad had lost half of their populations and about a third of uh, North American Atlantic salmon populations had been extirpated. But this was the real kind of take home slide. This is where we tried to quantify the actual abundances of these fish. And we have here on the left panel, uh, the American shore, on the right panel, the European shore. And for 31 time series, um, where they were all standardized now to one to make them more easily comparable, um, we had a 98% decline from historic highs in 13 of them and 90% in an additional 11. And what you see in, in panel after panel after panel is sharp declines. Um, sturgeon crashed in the late 1800s because of a worldwide caviar craze. They never rebounded. American shad crashed dramatically never rebounded. Um, alewives and blueback herring more recently, American eel and rainbow smelt more recently. The only exception to this overall pattern of, of major decline was striped bass. And the reason for that is that they crashed around 1980, uh, mainly in the Chesapeake Bay, but it was from overfishing. It wasn't from the many multiple drivers we have on other species. So once the overfishing was corrected, which was not easy to pull off, but it, it did work, um, we had a really actually amazing recovery. So it shows that it can be done. So looking at case histories of individual fish, we have um, changes in abundance for Atlantic salmon. My friends at the Atlantic Salmon Federation estimate that historically the U.S. had run sizes of 300,000 to 500,000 annually. In 2014, the total number was less than 400, uh, largely because of the Penobscot restoration that's increased a little bit lately up to 1500 total, um, but that's two orders of magnitude below what was there originally. So again, nice to see a little progress, but nothing yet to be all that proud of. And these fish are federally endangered in Gulf of Maine rivers, which I'll come back to later, but that gives us, I think, some leverage for more meaningful restoration. Carl uh, Lindbergh also looked at the amount of um, habitat lost for American shad along the East Coast. This was an early map of the uh, degree of penetration of shad in, in uh, Eastern rivers. And she calculated that about 40% of that habitat 
is now lost. <clears throat> so one of the uh, rivers that I followed in more detail was the Susquehanna River, which is the largest river on the East Coast. Uh, and it's not navigable uh, and it was a major shad producer. So the Susquehanna flows out of uh, Lake Otsego in upstate New York, about 400 miles from its mouth um, in the uh, upper Chesapeake. And it uh, has two branches. It had prodigious numbers of shad in the early days. Um, they were a huge part of the culture of the Susquehanna Valley. This is a shad bake going on, which was an annual springtime rite in almost every village and town where they would celebrate the arrival of spring and this almost endless food resource with these shad bakes where they would flay the fish and nail them to planks and, and roast them on an open fire. And uh, this is a uh, example of um, one of the landings of shad and river herring in the Susquehanna. And um, the fish were so abundant that there was a fishery near Scranton, Pennsylvania called the Webb Fishery where they would post the sentry up on a hill to look for the shad coming up the river so they could set the nets. And they would look for a bulge in the water. These fish were so numerous, they would make the water change and look like a, like a hill moving up river. There also was a fishery near the mouth of the river called the Stump Farm Fishery that in 1827 had a, it, had a, it was the biggest fishery that was, it had a huge net. And they set this net out one day um, and a very strong northwest wind came up and they couldn't land the net against the wind. So it fished for four days. Then it took three and a half days to get it in and unload the fish that came out of it. And it was estimated there were 15 million shad and river herring in that one hole. So this, come, this brings to mind that we have lost our contact or our knowledge of the potential productivity of these systems. And this fits into the very prominent uh, conservation um, theme these days of the shifting baseline syndrome. The shifting baseline syndrome was proposed by um, an excellent fish biologist, Daniel Pauly, in 95. A friend of his who was an editor of a journal called Trends in Ecology and Evolution had a page left at the end of the journal and said, Daniel, you want to write something? And he had been thinking about this for a while. So he wrote a very kind of informal one-pager that um, brought this case out and uh, popularized it. And it is one of the primary uh, conservation um, touchstones for um, aquatic fisheries these days. So the, the, the really key paragraph here was that each generation of fishery scientists accepts as a baseline the stock size that occurred at the beginning of their careers and uses this to evaluate changes. When the next generation starts its career, the stocks have further declined, but it is the stocks at that time that serve as a new baseline. And so it's essentially serving as kind of almost like a ratchet in a way that only goes in one direction. And its importance is shown in some data that uh, we found for the Potomac River, which was a phenomenally productive Shad River. And uh, if you look at the time span from 1887 to about 2000, a little past 2000, it is nothing to be proud of. It is nothing but decline. Um, pretty awful. But and you, and you and you think when you look back at 1887, that probably was somewhat um, reflective of the overall potential of the, of the river. But just lock in your mind 1887 and look at the next slide. This is 1887. This is 1814. 
this brings to mind the importance of historical ecology as something that needs to be done more of to um, both raise awareness of the potential of these systems, which I think we give short shrift to because we've lost contact with their original abundances, and also to help inspire further restoration because the gap between this and this is just unconscionable. So what can be done about this? Um, I published a paper recently in Science Advances where we looked at the tractability of the various drivers. And if we take them one by one quickly, I would say pollution is largely rectified. I don't think pollution was ever that huge a factor anyway. You know, I'm very familiar with the Hudson. The Hudson had very, very large shad fisheries in the early and mid 1900s, despite the fact it was well before the Clean Water Act uh, pr produced its benefits. And, um, you know, except in extreme cases, pollution has not been that much of a factor. Then we have those drivers that are tractable and mostly already applied. So overfishing, I know that we don't manage fishing perfectly, but the Atlanta States Marine Fisheries Commission has um, generated a much better management regime over our migratory fisheries than existed prior to its existence. And um, overfishing is no longer that much of a problem. Um, power plants are a problem in some systems like in the Chesapeake, the Delaware and the Hudson, they, they can suck in huge amounts of eggs and larvae um, when the uh, water is brought in to cool the turbines. But our power plants are aging out and we're gonna be going, I think in the future to closed cycle cooling instead of open cycle cooling. Open cycle uses uh, river water freshly time after time, whereas closed cycle recycles the same water and does a lot less harm. Um, then we have those factors or drivers that are essentially untractable. And that includes one that I think does not get enough attention, which is non-native species. Remember these fish evolved to leave their eggs way up river in systems that were relatively devoid of predators. And uh, since colonists came, we have introduced many species to the Northeast that weren't there, such as smallmouth bass and largemouth bass, which are um, tremendously predatory and will eat a lot of uh, out-migrating um, juvenile migratory fish. Um, so they are here to stay. And it's not only the ones that are directly predatory, but we have species like zebra mussels that have changed the ecology of these systems in ways that are not favorable for uh, diagenous species. And then climate. Climate theoretically is tractable. We could reverse warming, but I am not of the opinion that's happening anytime soon, if ever. And if you disagree with me, I would love to hear your argument. So what's tractable but unrectified? Well, I think the answer is sort of obvious. It's dams. Uh, this is the Conowingo Dam on the Susquehanna, the first one the fish see when they come from the ocean. Um, it's right there at the mouth of the river and it blocks uh, hundreds of miles of, of um, spawning habitat and, and important habitat for these fish. I'm gonna come back to it later. So how do fish pass dams? For those of you who are not um, professionals in this arena, but you're probably aware that there are these things called fish ladders, which allow fish in theory to ascend heights by going from baffle to baffle to baffle or chamber to chamber. And there's all different designs. And depending on the species, the design, the location, um, they can work from almost not at all to being reasonably good. Although I would say overall their track record is not all that great. 
Then we have fish, and one more thing about them, they are very species um, selective. For instance, striped bass and sturgeon are just almost never found in these kinds of devices. We have fish elevators for dams that are too tall uh, for fish ladders, and they have an attraction flow that um, the fish sense and are fooled into thinking it might be you know, an easy way up over the dam. Um, they then go into some kind of a chamber or hopper where they press uh, for the, uh, the, the penthouse and get brought up to the level of the reservoir and then get to swim into the reservoir. And they are less species selective. Um, there are problems with them. I have a student currently working on their success and there are a lot of times when they're not functioning because of uh, staffing reasons or too much water or too low water or whatever. Um, but they are one of the engineered uh, options. Then we have one that is actually, I think, kind of sad, and that's migration V, the internal combustion engine. This is where fish that have gone out of the open ocean and swam for years um, in a huge migratory circuit, avoiding sharks and whales and seals, come back to the river and are netted and put into a truck to get to the spawning grounds. It's kind of a desperate operation. It's like triage. Um, and that's really what it is. It's, it's what you do when you have no other hope, when your fish ladders aren't working. So I worked on a paper with some colleagues that uh, was published as Brown et al. 2013, where we looked at um, the performance of these fishways in large Northeastern rivers. We looked at the Merrimack, the Connecticut, and the Susquehanna. And we looked at the number of shad passed as a percent of the target. And uh, I should say the targets are not in any way ambitious compared to the likely size of the original runs. Nonetheless, it has been pretty much utter failure. Susquehanna is right here, barely visible above the x-axis. Uh, Connecticut has at times reached almost 5% of the target. The Merrimack had this anomalous um, surge for a while to 25% of the target, but it dropped back down to virtually zero and has been bouncing around. So we have not done well using the approach of engineered fishways on our major rivers. We also looked at passage efficiencies for shad. Passage efficiencies are, uh, what is the percentage of fish that make it past each dam that make it past the first dam? So you can see here in the uh, blue, the first to the second dam, and in some cases you can reach um, in the Merrimack 30% and the Susquehanna for a while, um, 50%, but that's not getting you to the spawning grounds. You need to get past the last dam in that sequence. And when you look at the red, it flatlines for the Merrimack and it's close to that, the Connecticut and the Susquehanna. So obviously uh, we're not doing well here. And the thing about this kind of uh, analysis is that you can't blame it on, um, on you know, vague oceanic issues, which you know, sometimes come into play when people try to uh, describe why these fish have crashed. These are fish that are already in the system. They passed the first dam. This has to do with the river conditions only, not with the open ocean. So what can be done? Dam removal is the obvious answer. Uh, there is a fantastic Atlantic Coast precedent. That is the removal of the Edwards Dam on the Kennebec, which, uh, was built um, in the 1800s. It blocked um, all the river above it, never had a fish ladder. It produced, it's based, it was based in Augusta, Maine, 
and it produced only three and a half megawatts of power, which uh, John McPhee wrote in the founding fish is basically enough to power the uh, LL Bean warehouse, not much more. So uh, even though it was um, licensed by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, um, it was allowed to be taken down in July 1st of 99. Immediately, um, all kinds of migratory fish were seen in the 17 miles up to the next dam. And really importantly, it opened up access to the Sebastocook River, which is a major tributary and which hadn't seen an alewife in 162 years. Within several years, that population went from zero to six million. And it's had major benefits for that part of Maine. Um, it, had, it attracts more than 50 bald eagles every spring that make a living off it for a while. It also attracts a lot of commercial fishermen from the coast who come to get lobster bait, which is a precious commodity these days. And it has become so popular locally that it spawned its own uh, alewife festival. So beyond the ecology that I've been harping on, there's other issues too with dams. One is that the dams in the Northeast are the oldest in the country because the uh, New England was settled before the West Coast, obviously. And our dams are aging. And I'm, I'm not an engineer, but I did tour a lot of dams in the Northeast. And some of them are downright scary in their conditions. I wouldn't want to live down uh, below them. So these things don't last forever. They, they age and they sediment behind them. And uh, many are coming up for FERC relicensing. And this is an opportunity to um, proactively take them down for both safety reasons and ecological reasons. And safety is becoming more of a factor because every year they get a year older and our weather is getting more um, violent in some ways. We're having more and, and more pronounced storms. Uh, to give you an example, in South Carolina in 2015, there was this <clears throat> unusual weather condition that produced about 12 inches of rain very quickly. And they had 49 dams fail and 18 people died. And we're gonna see more of this in the future with our storms becoming uh, more pronounced. Another factor about hydropower that I think does not get enough attention is that <clears throat> each, each facility is rated for a certain amount of power <clears throat> to be produced. And the average person thinks, okay, that's kind of a steady state. That's what comes out of that system. In reality, there's something called capacity factor, which is the actual amount of power that emanates from these systems rather than the idealized. And for the Conowingo, for instance, it has a rather high 548 megawatt uh, capacity, but its capacity factor is typically less than half of that uh, for reasons of repair, maintenance, uh, too much water, too little water. So I did an analysis with some colleagues that was interesting a few years ago. Um, we published this in a Nature Journal, and we looked at the uh, hydropower pattern across the country. And, and New England has many, many, many small hydropower facilities. We have big ones on the TVA reservoirs in the Appalachians. And of course, the Columbia is uh, tremendously important in terms of national hydropower. But overall, uh, hydropower contributes about 7% of our energy needs. And that's going to go down with alternative energy coming on so strongly. So we asked the question, what would it take to free American rivers of all hydropower and we found there were 2,603 hydropower dams in the lower 48 states. And that if you substituted solar um, production for hydropower alone, you would need a land area the size of Delaware. 
which is one very small state. And if you broke that up across the entire country, you could have a whole lot of rivers free again. One idea we've been playing with um, about how to do this is what, with what we call the shared river concept, which is the idea of sharing a river more equitably between power production and, um, and fish production. So if you had a dam here um, and you breached it, you would get fish coming past that dam, swimming up the river. But we would also lose water because your reservoir would be gone. So you gain land in that case. And theoretically, you could put uh, solar power on that newly emergent land, at least in some cases. Uh, you also, if you had ponded areas, you could use floating solar, which is working out terrifically well in uh, Asia and actually lowers uh, temperatures in, in bodies of water, which is a good thing these days. And given that most reservoirs occur surrounded by hills, you could put wind power around the edges. And you could even perhaps draw some power from the river itself without blocking it using kinetic turbines. So in the end, you could have a energy park, which is more resilient because it has more sources of energy and more productive than hydropower alone. And there's a really important benefit here in that the hydropower already had transmission lines to bring it to where it's needed. So you could capitalize on that and use that for your energy park, um, which would save a whole lot of uh, construction cost. So I wanna focus now on Maine for the remainder of this talk. And this is a great photo of the Bangor salmon pool on the Penobscot in 1926. And there are seven salmon, seven nice salmon in this image, which probably was a morning's catch for the members of this club. And these cl this club took this, this activity seriously. You can see the men are actually wearing ties as they drift flies for salmon um, on this river. It was in a culturally important part of the, of the region. There were the very um, popular salmon clubs that fished the Penobscot for salmon, and they would routinely take lots of salmon. These seven salmon would represent a good portion of the total return of salmon to the Kennebec River every year today. That's how much things have changed. The recent 10-year average Kennebec returns about 30 fish annually. I know we're talking Penobscot versus Kennebec, but they are parallel rivers of similar size, and I think we can make uh, connections between them. So looking at the entire state of Maine, there are 241 hydro dams, which is a high number. I think it's, I think it might be third in the country. I have to check that. Uh, they have a 726 megawatt nameplate capacity, which is what they could produce uh, maximally in theory. But the mean is only three megawatts per dam. And the reason for that is that a lot of these dams, and here is the pattern of dams throughout um, Maine, are basically retrofits to logging dams. Um, so these were small dams that controlled modest amounts of water, and later on they slapped hydro uh, turbines on them. So about 75% of the total comes from only 24 dams, which are dams on larger rivers. So it's an unusual state in that regard. Um, we estimated that to replace all 241 hydro dams in Maine, you would need about 19,000 acres of um, photovoltaic capacity or about 0.08% of the state area, which is equal to the footprint of Augusta. So you could get rid of all those dams if you put solar in as large as the city of Augusta. Uh, looking at the Kennebec now, uh, the Kennebec was described as a Shangri-La for fishes by uh, Robert Tristam Coffin, who wrote a wonderful book about the Kennebec uh, in 19, I think it was 1927. 
Um, and he, he kind of waxed eloquently about the potential of this river and the history of this river for fish production. And uh, I agree with it after spending some time on the river. The Kennebec has 1,400 Howard dams on its watershed. It yields about 246 megawatts of nameplate capacity. Its capacity factors, you know, basically its efficiency is uh, 26 to 73%. So it's not, it's not reaching that nameplate capacity. And we estimated that it would take a little over 3,000 acres for full replacement of those dams on the Kennebec, which would equal about 0.03% of the entire Kennebec River watershed. So for a relatively minuscule amount of land, you could replace all these dams and have your river back again. Looking now at the bottom of the river, the four lowermost dams in the Kennebec, where we have the Lockwood, Hydro-Quebec, Shumut, and Weston dams, they block access to the Sandy River, which is the most important tributary for Atlantic salmon spawning in the Kennebec River. They are rated at a total of 43 megawatts. The capacity factors range from 48% to 68%. And we estimate it would take a relatively minor 504 acres to replace all four dams with uh, solar power. So looking at salmon in the Kennebec, the history, um, Atkins in 1867, estimated that before 1820, the run size in that one river alone ranged between 68,000 and 216,000 fish. For comparison in 2018, a total of 11 salmon showed up or trapped and trucked to the Sandy River. And the recent 10 year average is about 30 per year. So how far we have fallen. So what can be done? We need to ultimately free rivers in space and time. This is a healthy river. When a healthy river, Fish come from the ocean over a broad period of time, move up river to suitable locations, over time may develop different races uh, that may spawn early in one tributary, late in another, may get larger in one tributary. This is kind of like a fine tuning customization of the population to the characteristics of the river. And really importantly, they have free passage, which means they can come when they want and they can leave when they want. And by being able to escape the river, and return later on, they can come back as bigger fish that hold more eggs and will um, more uh, productively reproduce. This is a healthy river. What we have today, looking at engineering diagrams for the Androscoggin and Kennebec River system, we have uh, what look like railroad tracks, um, dam after dam after dam after dam. So these fish who enter these waters now need to uh, you know, run a gauntlet of dams, which never seems to work anywhere. So there are many issues with the Brookfield proposals for relicensing. Um, this is very complicated stuff. And uh, Maine DMR has serious concerns with the proposed fishway expectations for upstream passage. For instance, uh, it's proposed that they can exceed 95% passage at each dam within 48 hours for each when the fish arrive, which DMR considers unrealistic. Uh, they have similar kind of criticisms for the very critical downstream passage for smolts and, uh, and adults. And the situation is largely being assessed with modeling. And, you know, there's an old saying that all models are wrong and some models are useful. Uh, modeling is one way to go and it makes sense to model this. Uh, if you want to know the details, you're gonna have to read a lot of very thick documents about um, the actual modeling expectations. I cannot possibly begin to address it here, nor am I the right person for this. But I will say that we have a uh, 
kind of a parallel situation that is worth paying attention to. And that's the Susquehanna again. Susquehanna is like the lower Kennebec in that it has four dams in a row. The Kennebec has issues with um, salmon and shad. The Susquehanna does not have salmon. Nonetheless, it had many shad. In fact, there is a credible analysis for the Potomac, which was considered to not be the major shad river. The Susquehanna was considered the shad river in the old days. The analysis suggests in a back of the envelope calculation that the Potomac had a run size of about 3 billion fish, not million, but 3 billion shad per year. Uh, let's look at what's happened to the, so I think the Susquehanna was in the same ballpark. Um, let's look at what actually occurs in the Susquehanna in any given year. And I picked one kind of at random. The goal for restoration of shad in the Susquehanna is about three quarters of a million, which is again, well below the possibly one or more billion fish that were there. So the one thing about modern fish passage that is kind of lucky accident is that uh, you can count each fish that passes each dam because you are handling them so uh, directly. So in 2014, again, kind of a random year, uh, a little over 10,000 shed passed the Conowingo Dam. Of those, 2,500 passed the second dam at Holtwood. Um, about half of those passed Safe Harbor and eight fish made it past York Haven. So to go from a billion or more to eight fish is a six order of magnitude decline. Rather remarkable. And think about what's going on here for these fish. They are trying to figure out how to get past the first dam with some kind of a fish ladder or a fish elevator. They get into a reservoir that has no current detectable when they first get there. So they have to then figure out where the flow is coming from when they get there, they have to figure out the next fish ladder. Then they pass that um, and they have the same problem in the next reservoir, the next reservoir. By the time they get to the fourth, past the fourth dam, they are uh, tired and they are weeks late from the normal spawning time, which means that whatever production occurs may not be actually linked to the production cycles that are important for their young. So, I'm just going to finish up with my own opinion here. You can feel free to disagree, but I think it's time to ditch the status quo. We have been tweaking East Coast fishways for over 50 years now, and they have failed to restore migratory fish populations. You know, the, the, the engineers are sincere. They want to make it work. I want to see it work. But the little tweaking of, of flows and, and directions of outflows and just these minor changes are not going to make much of a difference. Uh, so there's no reason to believe they ever will. They've had 50 years to do this. Uh, but fortunately, the Endangered Species Act provides real leverage for real restoration. Um, there is the opportunity to use the ESA to actually affect real change with removals um, on the Kennebec River. So I'm going to end with uh, an image that I love. It's a pretty famous image. It's of chum salmon crossing um, a wet road uh, in the uh, Seattle area. I'm going to ask why did the fish cross the road? And the answer is to spawn. These fish have an incredibly innate drive to get to the spawning grounds. And they will do almost anything to get there, but you have to give them a chance. It's kind of like uh, the Field of Dreams movie. You know, the old saying was that uh, if you build it, they will come. When it comes to, to uh, rivers and dams, if you take it down, they will come. And I'll stop there. Thank you. 
for listening to Maine Environment Frontline Voices. If you enjoy this episode, you can subscribe to our podcast or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and several other podcast listening apps. Since 1959, NRCM has been tapping into the power of the Maine people, science, and the law to protect and enhance the nature of Maine. To learn more about our work, visit nrcm.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at nrcm.org.